0: This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Alert Medic 1 response.
0: Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One Podcast.
1: <laughs> Hi, Dr. Anders. Welcome back. Uh, tell us a little, little bit about your background. Uh, thank you for being on the show again, by the way.
2: It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I am Dr. Jennifer Anders. I am a pediatrician by training and I specialize in pediatric emergency medicine. And then I subspecialize in pediatric EMS. And I am employed most of the time as an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the Johns Hopkins Children's Center, working in the uh, trauma program directly in the emergency department. I spend the funnest part of my time working uh, at Maryland's state uh, EMS agency, uh, MIMS, as the state's uh, associate state medical director for pediatrics.
1: How long have you been with MIMS?
2: I've been with MIMS, I believe it is seven years. Gotcha. Cool. Somewhere in the 2016 time frame, Yeah. I took the uh, associate state medical director position, but I've been part of MIMS and it's been a significant piece of my pediatric emergency medicine career since I first got to Maryland in the early 2000s.
1: Did you do your residency here or how did that work?
2: No, I'm a lifelong Midwesterner. I was born and raised in Nebraska and I wanted to see the world so when the little postcard came in the mail about joining the Navy I was like absolutely sign me up. Oh cool. So the Navy put me through medical school and After I was fully trained as a pediatrician, the Navy stationed me uh, on the shores of Lake Michigan, just outside Chicago. And so I did not get to see a whole lot of the world, but uh, I spent four very fruitful, positive years working for the Navy and then uh, went back to pediatric emergency medicine training, still in Chicago. And then in 2005 uh, my husband and I came out here to Maryland and planted ourselves and uh, have no intention of ever leaving Maryland. I think it's the best place in the whole world.
1: That's very cool. That's very cool. What's the what's the standard path for someone who wants to get into like pediatric emergency medicine?
2: So there's two routes. One would be to train as a pediatrician and then go specialize in emergency medicine. It's also possible for people who are trained in general emergency medicine to pursue a subspecialty in pediatrics. But um, we find a lot more pediatricians uh, that want to put in the extra year so that they can spend their life and career in the fun filled world of the emergency department, than you find people who do general emergency medicine who say, eh, I'm not interested in adults anymore. I only want to do kids. So. so
1: either way, it's like a like you have to go do a fellowship, I guess? Either way, okay. it requires a yeah. fellowship. Gotcha, gotcha. So there's no real direct entry to pediatric emergency medicine? Just like, what, what does a... No,
2: although okay. there's plenty of people who just do a pediatrics training mm-hmm. and go out and work in a community emergency department And there are plenty of people who do an emergency medicine residency program and enjoy working with kids. And so Mm -hmm. they find themselves in emergency departments that see a lot of children uh, as a general department. So it's
1: not like a uh, hard and fast rule that you have to have done a pediatrics fellowship to work in a pediatric ED.
2: No, the majority of kids that are seen in an emergency department are Mm -hmm. not seen by somebody who's done one of these two residency fellowship situations. They're seen by either general pediatricians who choose the ED as their location or general emergency medicine docs who just enjoy seeing kids. And so they do a lot of it.
0: Cool. So in that same vein, is there um, specific guidelines within the state to delineate a pediatric ER? For example, um, Shady Grove has a pediatric ER. Is there specific requirements for the type of staffing that they have or what What is different between them and, say, going to um, Montgomery General Hospital in Olney that has a pediatric section, but it's not a pediatric ER? What would be the difference?
2: That is a fantastic question. (laughs) There is federal guidance that is asking for the emergency medical services for children or the EMSC programs that exist in all 50 states plus a whole bunch of territories. There's 59 of these programs that are federally funded uh, all across the United States. And uh, there's one of the federal performance measures from EMSC has been for many years that each state or territory come up with a way to designate its programs that are prepared to take care of children and separate them from those that are not. There's absolutely no consensus between the states about how we do that. The way that Maryland has, uh, up to 2023, chosen to designate certain facilities as pediatric-ready is the designation of our two pediatric trauma centers, burn centers. So we have designated uh, the Children's National Hospital physically outside the boundaries of uh, our state uh, in the District of Columbia and Johns Hopkins Children's Center in Baltimore as our pediatric Specialty care centers, pediatric trauma centers, pediatric burn centers. Beyond that, there is absolutely nothing on paper. There is no regulation that creates any difference between the emergency department at, for example, Shady Grove, which is a very sophisticated uh, community hospital emergency department, and for example, one of the freestanding emergency departments that are open for business where kids can certainly roll on in, or the departments that are located in sites that have small pediatric inpatient units, or the hospitals that have pediatric um, specialty care and, and fairly comprehensive programs like the University of Maryland, uh, which has a PICU and does ECMO and a NICU and all the bells and whistles. We have very rudimentary Designation of what is a pediatric facility in Maryland, and no uh, guidance at all for what is a pediatric emergency department. So that is one of the top uh, top goals that I have for the next three years: is to create some definitions and put into practice a pediatric recognition program.
0: Awesome. I mean, I I think that would be really uh, a great thing for the state um, and the hospitals in general. I know um, a local hospital not too far from here went through some crises uh, in the past couple of years with their pediatric ER yep. while still having uh, quite in-depth pediatric services above the ER floor. Um, and I, I get the feeling that not having those designations in that criteria probably played a part in how that all went down. And I think it might protect that and make sure that then us as clinicians, you know, for me, you know, say going to Shady Grove, I know for a fact that like, hey, if you have a pedi- pediatric, it, it meets this criteria to go to this facility over another one because they are pediatric ER that has XYZ things, you know, either the staffing or the capabilities, stuff like that. So.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, mean, I know that EMS clinicians across Maryland, and I'm sure everywhere in the country, want to take a child to a facility that's going to be able to take care of that child. That's part and parcel of the business, right? Identify what this patient needs and get them to a place where they can get the care they need. And our clinicians, I feel, deserve to have very transparent information about what is available at specific facilities. I trust that the majority of Maryland clinicians know the basic score of what's happening at the facilities that they transport to on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But we should not be putting this all on the backs of the judgment of the medic in the back of the ambulance because it may be somebody with 25 years of experience who knows all the ins and outs about what a facility is capable of doing or it could be somebody who got their card two weeks ago and is is trying their best it is not an insurmountable goal to clearly list out the capabilities of each facility to that and distribute that information or you don't even have to print it it's 2023 you can put it uh, on an electronic uh, format exactly. but distribute it to our clinicians so they're armed with actual uh, information rather than just having to learn on the job and say like well when I took this kind of patient there I got the dirty look and so I'm not going to take that kind of patient to that place anymore which mm-hmm. I know folks do and I think They generally do a good job of it, but uh, I'm not doing my job as a medical director working at the big state office building if I don't try to put some kind of categorization together and provide that information in a clear format for our clinicians.
3: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and, you know, where we see, uh, you know, something you said struck a chord with me there, where we see that a lot, you know, with the things like trauma, it's easy, right? Like, we know what constitutes a pediatric trauma center and what needs to go to a pediatric trauma center. Where I find people get hung up a lot, uh, and as far as a particular call type is, pedi- pediatric psychiatric calls. Mm-hmm. I find that people have a very hard time deciding where to go, and then... Um, you know, sometimes it's easy because if you have access to a, you know, major hospital, like we have a couple in the city here, um, it may be easy to say, okay, we'll go to that major hospital because they just have everything. But when you start moving out towards the counties and everything like that, it, it becomes difficult sometimes to figure out, you know, is there any difference between this hospital and that hospital? Who's going to be more appropriate? Is it more appropriate to divert you know a couple more minutes down the road to go somewhere else. Um, it's just something I've I've noticed at work where I work. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up um, was how do you feel we can do better in our initial training and education for EMTs and paramedics in terms of building a comfortable factor for our clinicians dealing with pediatric patients because there's often a barrier there where we have this kid who may be a little sick but maybe we're not a hundred percent sure how sick they are because the emt or paramedic may not have a lot of experience with kids Um, or you may have the really sick kid who is obviously sick sick And because it's a low frequency, high acuity event, we don't have a lot of experience with it. So how do you, you feel we can address that in the initial training of the EMT or paramedic?
2: Hmm. One of the things I try to eliminate from the ways that I do pediatric education is this old fashioned idea where we used to go around saying like, Oh, kids aren't just small adult kids are, different kids that need special and well it's true that we do have lots of unique information to impart about pediatrics by really going back to that cliche of how different pediatric care is I feel like we've kind of gotten in our own way and created some of that mystique or created this idea that you can't use any of the knowledge that you have about taking care of grownups when you're gonna take care of kids. In reality, most of the principles that apply to EMS medicine for adults probably also apply to pediatrics. And some of the big ticket items that I'm working to change kind of culture and behavior, there's almost no difference at all. For example, in cardiac arrest, I think there's been a magnificent movement forward over the last decade or so with the rise of, of high-performance CPR and pit crew CPR and staying on scene in a, a real understanding, especially in the BLS community, that your hands on that chest are the most important thing we can do to potentially save this person's life. And that goes for kids just as much as it it does for adults. But because we've hyped up so much fear of kids are different, I think is one of the main reasons why we see people who are extraordinary at providing CPR and will stay and resuscitate an adult on scene still wanting to grab that baby and run for the ambulance and hightail it for the hospital um, because we've just created fear. I am a big proponent of the uh, pediatric educational program called PEP, the um, Pediatric Education for Pre-Hospital Professionals, that's been around for more than 20 years now. And the core teaching in PEP is the pediatric uh, assessment triangle or patient assessment triangle, where from a doorway, you can look over there and in less than five seconds say that person is either mentally With it or not, they are either blue or not, and they are either breathing semi-normal or not. And based on that, know from the doorway who you need to immediately resuscitate and who you don't. And you don't have to know how old a kid needs to be to to ride a bicycle or talk in three-word sentences. You just need to be able to look at a kid from 20 feet across the room and say, that kid don't look right, And if he doesn't look right, it's time to jump in and do what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, my agency uh, actually gives PEP to all of our um, as initial education for uh, all of our academy recruits. Uh, It's part of their last two months in the academy, and they all get PEP. Uh, We don't hit it again at any point in our career, uh, whether EMD or paramedic. Uh, We don't require PALS. We only uh, offer a research for that once a year, but... I feel as though I agree, PEP uh, was a great thing. I had already had PALS before that. I saw a lot of correlation between PEP and PALS, um, which I've said before. I think PALS is one of the AHA classes that, when done correctly, is a, it really gives a lot of information. I've, I've taken things away from PALS more than I've taken from ACLS. That's for sure. Hmm. Um, and I don't know, it's maybe it's because of the repetitions of the, the program that I took it through. They, we got through a lot of patient hand-on or hand-on patient hands-on patient contact um but uh the i agree pep is a good one um and i the one thing with pep though i think it's like this personal opinion i think it's underutilized in the state i don't see it being talked about a whole lot um it's not something that is brought up all the time and do you think that's true do you think it's being taught plenty across the state or not
2: I think there's room to teach it more. Uh, We have a program with Maryland EMSC. We have folks that we call champions uh, embedded in each EMS jurisdiction throughout the state. And we take our champions and we offer them uh, PEP instructor courses, trying to build a large cohort of PEP instructors to offer more frequent uh, iterations of the program across the state. Um, the EMSC program tends to offer a pep course as a pre-conference at most of the most of the regional conferences across Maryland. But we have a six-person staff uh-huh. for that, and uh, we're, we're teaching this twelve people at a time. Yeah. The secret to Getting a program like that to really have legs is a cadre of instructors that are going to go out across the state and be comfortable teaching it.
1: So that kind of surprised me. Oh, I'm loud. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no regulation for, like, (laughs) what incentivizes a hospital to even open a department? I mean, I hate to sound pessimistic here, but like, What's the, I mean, they just wanted to open pediatric emergency department, so they did it out of the goodness of their heart, because that sounds hard to believe. And also, hasn't there been a recent, like, shutdown of a lot of Mm -hmm. pediatric emergency departments? So could you speak to that a bit?
2: So what is motivating them? Money, I assume. Mm -hmm. Uh, They think they're going to have patients come in that they can bill for the care. And to a lesser extent, because emergency departments can't control who walks through their door and asks to be cared for if a lot of children are walking into mm. a department a lot of times staff that are general emergency medicine trained who aren't particularly keen on taking care of children will say well i don't want to take care of all these kids can't you hire somebody else to take care of the children so i don't have to and so they'll open uh, a Portion or create a, a pediatric emergency department subsection so that that burden of care is kind of taken off of their general staff pediatric medicine does not pay as much as adult medicine kids tend to be less ill and uh, you bill less when you take care of them so there have been all across the state and across every state in the country gradual retractions of pediatric bed availability so that if you know places that used to have eight beds available for pediatrics now have six beds or five beds or two beds and places that used to have four beds available for pediatrics now have zero inpatient beds and we had in maryland i think it was 2017 2017 or 2018 one of our largest uh, pediatric one of our largest emergency departments that provided pediatric ed care and, and pediatric inpatient care at a very high level abruptly closed its doors and stopped providing any pediatric care with about 48 hours of notice, and that was a huge shock to the system. But it's been happening silently for 10 or 15 years that um, the pediatric units have been shrinking, and we've seen over the last decade about a 25% contraction of the available pediatric beds across the state of America.
1: The Maryland Healthcare Commission controls beds, right, with mm-hmm. the through a certificate mm-hmm. of need mm-hmm. for new beds. Do mm-hmm. they? Do hospitals have to get permission to close beds, or no? Nope. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool.
3: That's fine. Um, just on that same note, is there any statistical or numerical, concrete? correlation between having a pediatric ED and having better outcomes for pediatric patients as opposed to just going to a general ED? So
2: because pediatric ED doesn't have a precise definition, it's hard to say. To be about it, I can go get a poster of Mickey Mouse and put it up on the wall and say, look, it's a pediatric ED now. I've got a cartoon on the wall.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because nobody is asking to say, well, do you have pediatric sized supplies? Do you have pediatric training? Has your staff you know, taken pals? What is your QI process for pediatric care? There is a program that is uh, very well there's a program that is very well utilized across the country. About 80% of hospitals participate in what's called the National Pediatric Readiness Project. And it's a survey of emergency departments that every ED in the country is asked to complete about once every three to five years. And there is excellent data from that program that we know the pay- the facilities, those EDs that score highest in their pediatric readiness score, which includes things like having a designated physician champion of pediatrics, a nurse champion for pediatric care, defined policies for how you weigh kids in kilograms and do weight-based dosing medications, and having all the relevant supplies in the range of ages and a policy about whether you're going to allow family presence in the trauma bay and all these various things that when you add them up amount to being a pediatric emergency department. But if you put them into this score, there is extremely good correlation between having a high pediatric readiness score and good outcomes for the hospitals that score in the lowest quartile of pediatric readiness compared to the hospitals that score in the highest quartile of pediatric readiness. So the bottom 25th percentile compared to the top 75th to 99th percentile, four times the rate of mortality for the same type of condition,
3: Hmm.
2: kid presenting in shock sepsis, whatever, at that lowest quartile hospital compared to the highest quartile hospital. Wow. And we also know, yes, it is. And we also know that there are hospitals that score in that lowest quartile that are, they've got the teddy bear on the sign, and they present themselves as pediatric hospitals. Uh, And there are hospitals that are just run-of-the-mill community hospitals that aren't going out of their way to say look at us we do pediatrics that score in that top quartile
1: okay just your last statement do you think there's a little bit of bias because those people do put up the stickers that they're going to see sicker patients and have worse outcomes
2: no th- th- this is these are very high quality studies that have been mm-hmm. done that have that account have for that. accounted and adjusted for yeah the severity of the patients yeah. presenting they've repeated those studies for trauma patients being taken to trauma centers that have the highest quartile, lowest quartile. And similarly, the the patients survive at about twice the rate at the higher preparedness hospitals compared to the lower preparedness hospitals.
1: Are there examples of states that do a good job at regulation?
2: There are several states that have adopted – Regulations for defining pediatric readiness. Less than a dozen of them are operating on a tiered recognition system. So recognizing that some hospitals do ICU-level care, some hospitals do basic inpatient-level care, other hospitals have an emergency department that can do stabilization and then they're going to transfer out. There are... Some hospitals that have attempted to create categorization strictly based off of this readiness scoring system, and that hasn't particularly panned out uh, because it's a self report. but um, th- there there's a there's definitely some states that have programs that I consider to be uh, worth emulating, and that Maryland EMSC is looking at as those we want to um, try to model ourselves in that same vein.
1: So that, I think that's a perfect transition to what we wanted to talk about. Net was what Josh brought up yesterday. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit, But um, uh, and, and I'll let Josh ask the question. But other, I'll start it off with uh, other states have standardized systems for, like, I don't know, categorizing pediatric care. Do you, is that what you want to call it? Or Uh, I'll let you just ask your question. So um,
0: prior to this uh, before recording, we kind of talked about the, uh, the addition to protocols that are coming is it's going to be the um, age-based dosing and the age-based weight age correlation to weight and dosing of epi. Am I saying that right? That's that's a way of saying it. Well, how would you call
2: it? I call it? it a simplified epinephrine dosing.
0: And it's based Still. off of their age, which correlates to weight, right? Roughly? Yes. Okay.
2: It's it's based off of using age to estimate weight ranges, So and then a single dose inside each range rather than doing the math of yep. multiplying kilograms exactly. by a...
0: So uh, I guess this is what uh, Moose was referring to at the beginning a little bit of the spicy question. So this sounds a lot like HanTevy. Um and mm-hmm. Moose and I were having a conversation earlier today uh and bringing up what well, is the state looking to bring some kind of standard tool uh, outside of this chart that's coming for pediatrics overall. So uh, my agency uses HanTevy uh pretty exclusively uh, and I find it as a great tool not only in pediatrics, but there's also another portion, the CPR management tool, within it. Is the state looking to, I guess, create a um, pediatric management tool just in general where we can use this same age-based weight dosing for the epi but across the board for all drugs, not just epi? Are we looking at anything like that? Or maybe even backing something like heavy,
2: So the state is not allowed to endorse particular commercial programs. Okay. There has been for, gosh, I don't even know how many years, since I was a small baby pediatrician, uh, the Broslow Tape And estimating weight without weighing the patient has been around since, what, the 70s, probably, 80s? I think. Uh, I don't know when Brazil invented his his tape. Yes. A really long time ago. And obviously, a scale is rarely seen in the back of an ambulance. So any kind of weight-based... Dosing, which is how we want to dose most pediatric medications, is going to be an estimate. And you've got various options for estimating. There's the length-based tools. There is playing the old carnival guessing game. We're like eh, You look like you're about 20 kilos. Uh, and there is using the patient's age to estimate an ideal weight.
0: Yep and and to add on that that age part i i've like unofficially just been like paying attention to my pediatrics mm-hmm. that i'm transporting which i feel like at where i work within my jurisdiction we do a bunch more just because of a specific facility that's in our first due mm-hmm. um i look at their age and we get to uh typically uh, shady grove they weigh them every time we bring them in mm-hmm. and it's pretty close to that that uh age-relating r- relation to their weight. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm like, oh, just keep – it's like that subtle verification over and over again. Like, okay, that is right. That is right. That is right. Uh, you know, I just had one two days ago. 7-year-old uh, mom said, oh, I think she he's uh, 25 kilos. Went in. And uh, the 7-year-old is a 20-kilo uh, relation, but he was like right there. He's like 23.6, I think it was, when we brought him in. And uh,
1: I was like, okay, verification.
3: Pretty good. So for both myself and the... uh, Shipped up the thing. Angled up. There we go. Yeah. Is this better? A lot better. Okay. (laughs) So both for myself and for other people in the audience, how is the system that you're talking about any different than a length-based resuscitation tape? Because I'm not honestly familiar with it, and I, I don't quite understand the discussion we're having. Because to me... If I have a kid in cardiac arrest and mom or dad don't know the weight, I'm just going to take out the length-based resuscitation tape and problem solved. So so even if they're not in arrest, there's other drugs on that tape.
0: Yep. Uh, so, Doc, you can back me up on this one or maybe tell me I'm wrong when I say this. What we were told when we rolled out hand heavy within our agency is that they have found the Broslow to be sometimes wildly off on – the right the length and dosage like it doesn't correlate properly and then um when peter antevi went and developed his system the hand system where uh it's what it's um one for age one is 10 three is 15 it goes i'm blanking on it right now but what they found is that was much more of a solid correlation to their weight if you just knew their age, that their weight was within that realm, and that the, uh, the difference in, like, the, I guess, the point, uh, decimal point of kilograms was negligible on the administration of medication. Am I speaking to that correctly, Doc? You know, because uh, I know it relates now to the chart that is coming out in the protocols as
2: well. So I don't know. Okay that the same rigor of study has been done with the Hentevi estimates as it has been done with the Braslow tape. There is plenty of, of folks out there that have done studies pointing out the inaccuracy in Braslow measurements. I have a hard time believing that there's something magical about the ages that if one were to rigorously apply the same kind of study, you wouldn't find big three-year-olds and tiny nine-year-olds and kids that otherwise fall out of the expected range. Mm -hmm. That said, part of what we've done with the adoption of this epinephrine dosing scheme is give up a little bit of the need for exact dosing. There has been some reasonably good study to suggest that estimated dosing, uh, and people will talk about like the McDonald's sizing, you know, you get a small, medium, or a large dose of whatever drug is, For most medications in our armamentarium, there's enough leeway in the therapeutic range and we're staying far enough away from a toxic range that anywhere in this ballpark should get the job done and be safe. And there's a... Massive study underway uh, in Maryland. Um, Prince George's County is the only location that is is participating, but it's um, being run by the the and the Pediatric Emergency Research uh, Network. And there are nine or more EMS agencies that are uh, trialing this, basically small, medium, and large dosing of medazlam for pediatric seizure, so that you take away the stress of having to determine an exact number of kilograms, the stress of having to do the math to calculate a medication dosage, and therefore, A, shorten the time to give the dosage, and also feel more confident that you're going to deliver a dose that is somewhere in the range of acceptableness for this two-year-old versus nine-year-old versus 12-year-old. And uh, there is a strong current of opinion that that is a better way to go for pediatric drug dosing in general, rather than again. I, I hate to go against like the years of my my ancestor pediatricians who have been harping on you have to know the weight and you have to dose it exactly for the number of kilograms of the patient because 14 kilograms is different than 17 kilograms and you have to know it. N- To ask somebody, even in a hospital, sometimes I feel absurd when I'm ordering a dose of morphine for a patient and I'm asking a nurse to pull up a measurement that doesn't even exist on the little lines of the syringe. To ask somebody to do that in the dark in a moving vehicle is even more absurd. So how about we just come up with dosing ranges that are reasonable and make it simpler and more reliable for the clinicians to provide them to the patient. And so a lot of that is coming from a place of opinion that this is more feasible and is likely to work better in the EMS environment. There is not a lot of um, data proving that yet at this point, because the biggest study to date is this seizure study that is Still underway, and we won't have results for a couple more years. But our approach to this epinephrine question was partly informed by some of the um, research that is not specifically uh, hand heavy, but I'll call it hand heavy adjacent. Um, some remarkable pediatric cardiac arrest survival data that came out of Florida and drilling into the bundle of interventions um, that led. To uh, that very impressive increase in ROSCA survival for pediatric cardiac arrest, uh, the one that um, really spoke to me as this is different and this is something that, that is like low hanging fruit that we can actually tackle is making it as simple as possible to prepare an epinephrine dose before you get to the scene. Yep. And so if you're gonna prepare before you get to the scene, all we know is the age that's given for this call. And so we were going with a weight-based dose but using the only information we have about this patient that we haven't arrived to yet, which is their age, and providing epinephrine that is in a range that it should be effective for uh, treating cardiac arrest, and also within an acceptable dose range to not be harmful and that's where we came up with our with our scheme
0: uh for those that uh, want to know about that study it was polk county in florida Mm -hmm. um it was i know i saw it presented in 2019 at gems Mm -hmm. and i think it concluded in 2018 or 2017 is when they concluded the data and if i remember correctly maybe even
2: a little bit earlier
0: yeah they went from zero correct percent uh ross rate on pediatric cardiac arrest I say they get zero percent and they uh they they like to or not like to they in their data they realize that they see a lot more pediatric cardiac arrest because they have a lot of pools in Polk County. They have mm-hmm. a lot of drowning arrests. So they weren't even getting back drowning arrests, which typically are known to maybe be a little bit more achievable in ROSC than other arrests because of their etiology leading to the arrest. But uh, they went from zero to, I believe, 35% ROSC rate, which is in line with the adult national ROSC rate. Um, And uh, they did some amazing work in changing how they approach cardiac arrest, both as an agency and as a county and public health. Um, They really pushed uh, bystander CPR on kids, I mean, like real hard, which if anyone's been to a resuscitation academy, that's one of the big, big things that they push is like hey we need to have your agencies start doing public outreach on hands-only cpr for bystander cpr because without bystander cpr we're just getting farther and farther behind the curve on all the physiology that's happening as that person is in arrest and waiting for resuscitation mm-hmm. yep.
2: and the thing that i think is particularly impressive about their results is not only did they go to that from zero to 30 Whatever percent, uh, ROSC, the vast majority of those patients had neuro intact survival. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Hmm. yeah, there's definitely there's definitely been quite a culture shift over the last few years when it comes to on scene resuscitation for kids. Um, I mean, I can definitely tell you when I started, it was pick the kid up like a football, run out of the house, throw him in the ambulance, and beat feet to the hospital, and We're really sometimes still ending up in the ambulance, but we're at least not making it far most of the time before somebody says, no, we need to stop and work this kid here. And I mean, I anecdotally anecdotally can say I have seen at least some positive outcomes, not as many as I have with adults, but um, I don't see as many pediatric arrests as I see with adults either, so... Um, very fortunately fortunately yes, yes. <laughs> um so I, I do think that the state has done a very good job in leading that culture change and the evidence has really been distributed throughout the, the rank and file in, in the world um the one place that i don't see any buy-in and it's somewhere i'm not comfortable with myself is the pediatric termination of resuscitation mm-hmm. um and i i've understand medically why it makes sense Um, I just don't know that I'm the right person to do that in the field so what, what would you say to the paramedics out there who might look at that protocol and take a step back real quick
2: I would say don't worry about it go ahead and transport that patient we wrote that termination of resuscitation protocol very strategically so that there is no wrong answer That protocol was intended to put something in place so that if you are in an isolated location and you're going to do your best to work a code and provide high-quality CPR for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes, now what do I do when, unfortunately, I haven't got ROSC? And there's sort of a realization that further CPR is not going to bring this patient back. And when medics don't want to transport to the hospital and a family doesn't really give the presentation that they want their child to be transported to the hospital, it's okay to terminate on scene and utilize the same mechanism that we use for adult termination resuscitation. It was written extremely conservatively so, that in order to get to the place where you meet the criteria for our Maryland termination resuscitation uh, for pediatrics, that patient is going to be very, very dead. Uh, it's verification of asystole on a monitor, verification of poor entitle on the monitor, verification. Um, that the patient has had multiple doses of epi. I'm not worried that we are leaving any patients that are salvageable in the field with the protocol that we've written. I also know that the vast majority of patients aren't going to meet that criteria and um, can be transported. We put two particular criteria in there that are most important to me that say, number one, it is the judgment of the uh, clinicians on the scene that this is a good idea. Because if you don't think it's a good idea, put the patient in the ambulance, take them to the hospital, and let this be somebody else's problem. I don't want anybody feeling like they're in a physically unsafe situation, because sometimes families get a little bit out of control. Uh, this is obviously a very stressful situation for parents or family members to witness. And I don't want anybody in a psychologically unsafe situation. We did focus groups on termination of resuscitation for pediatrics. We went around the state. And in all of those focus groups and in most meetings that I've had, anytime I go to give a lecture somebody who's like 60 years old or in their 50s will come up to me and tell me about a story of a pediatric death that they attended when they were 19 or 20 years old and they are carrying it around with them for Mm -hmm. 30 years. And I don't want anybody to be in a situation where they feel like I was not sure about making this call but I did it anyway. If you're not sure, there's nothing in that protocol that... I don't think there's anything in that protocol that you ought to get chewed out by a QA officer or a supervisor if you don't terminate. Okay. It's written to support the medic who is on scene in whatever decision they make.
3: And to be clear, I can definitely see situations where it would be appropriate, maybe a terminally ill child, or like you said, the family's on board and understanding with what's going on. Um yeah we see
2: kids that are on dialysis or kids that have profound uh cerebral palsy, and nobody was expecting them to die today, but everybody knew eventually the day would come and so when it comes, those families are able to approach it the more more the way it is when you have a eighty five year old uh, that has a heart attack and some elderly person that I think is a much more comfortable situation for EMS clinicians who are familiar with termination of resuscitation for an adult or an elderly person.
3: It is empowering, though, to provide options like this to the EMS community, to mm-hmm. in, in that level of trust, mm-hmm. you know, that we can make these decisions appropriately. So mm-hmm. for what that's worth.
0: Yeah, I, I remember when it rolled out. It was a hot topic of discussion. That yes. uh, that research cycle. I mean, I think we talked about it a couple times over a couple different shifts, and as you know, people were on and off work and doing their updates and everything. And yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate that line of making sure that the family is ready for it, mm-hmm. and that the providers on scene all agree that this is the right decision, um, because it is a very weighty division or decision on scene for those providers you know it's it's going from definitely a culture and a um train of thought that for the longest time didn't matter what the situation was baby got transported doesn't matter if they're a if they you know hadn't been seen for 12 hours and were found in rigor or they were terminal illness or whatever baby got transported um but also, at the same time, it's like, hey, guys and girls, it's very specific on the stipulations for this habit. It's not like, you know, we're just going to walk in and just start pronouncing every pediatric that we think doesn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. No, it's very specific. And and I followed up with, you know, of the ones that I've attended, none of those families would have been ready for that decision. Mm-hmm. So all those kids would have been transported, and it still would have been the right decision. Mm-hmm. You know, both morally, ethically. Um, and also by the protocol. Yep. So uh, tried to kind of quell some of the thoughts because there are some people like, whoa, what are we doing? This is how are we going to be able to make this decision okay and be protected under the light of the law, blah, 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 And it's like, hey, let's have a more, I guess, critical look at this and understand what is actually being said. And it's it was a very well-written protocol for that. Um, so, yeah.
1: Can you – this brings up something really good that I actually forgot I was going to bring up. So can you actually go into, like, for example, PMAC, the pediatric quick, the development of pediatric-specific protocols and the extra steps that are taken for that? Because I think folks don't really – on the outside world, I I don't think paramedics EMTs understand how much additional work goes into, like, the pediatric side of things because I'll be honest with you. I didn't know until, you know, I sat – so – and the other thing I was going to say, it's really neat to see – this culture shift of like you know staying on scene because i remember it was me and one of my colleagues sitting in on a pmac and it was the first ever pmac i'd ever went to within the first couple months i started working here and the conversation was being had about this protocol so it's really Mm -hmm. i just kind of clicked in my head how culture changes right Uh, but yeah if you could speak to that yeah. What's a PMAC? She's going to get. What a great question. I'm
2: glad you asked. So, PMAC is the Pediatric Emergency Medical Advisory Committee. And uh, PMAC is composed of, um, we have a pediatric uh, regional medical director in each of the five regions of Maryland. So, there's me plus five other pediatric EMS. Designees, uh, docs, and PMAC also includes the nurse coordinators at the base stations, uh, both at DC Children's and at Hopkins Children's. It includes somebody representing the interfacility transport uh, pediatric specialty teams. We have uh, representatives from the pediatric trauma centers. The, the trauma surgeons are there. Um, Nurse uh, trauma coordinators. We have somebody from the School Nursing Association. We have a family um, advocate member who's sort of representing the public. We have uh, an ALS clinician, a BLS clinician, a commercial ambulance representative. So we have a, a reasonable microcosm of the Maryland EMS community and the pediatric subject matter experts that support them. And so we meet every other month. Uh, So we meet six times a year, and we do a whole lot of discussion about pediatric EMS programming that comes out of MIMS, a lot of the educational topics and such. But one of our major tasks is protocol creation for unique pediatric protocols, and then protocol um, advising or input for general protocols that may have a pediatric portion. Uh, So protocols that are um, under consideration will come to a protocol subcommittee that we have of the PMAC, and they're discussed with our small group. They go to this larger committee. We bat ideas around And it probably takes two or three meetings of PMAC before we solidify any protocol submissions that we want to take to the protocol review committee uh, here at MIMS that is composed of various medical directors, um, EMS medical directors from the jurisdictions across the state. We also have a pediatric quality improvement committee, and our quality improvement committee looks at various protocols that are already in existence, and we uh, try to track the important metrics for pediatric quality care. So we have, that is also an every other month meeting, and that is myself and uh, our, senior Johnson, our EMS for Children's Manager, uh, the Pediatric Regional Medical Directors, a variety of um, pediatric EMS um, researchers through the state and we one month look at trauma statistics, one month we look at uh, cardiac arrest and various resuscitation statistics, one month we look at sepsis, one month we look at airway, Uh, and coming up next month we're going to look at pain protocols and behavioral health is is our sixth one. And so we'll dig into that genre, look at what quality metrics are already on our QI plan and decide if we want to use any of that information to modify the existing protocols or to generate ideas for new protocols. So that's where, um, in that discussion, is where we came up with the changes for cardiac arrest that we wanted to put forward for the 2023 protocol cycle that are going into effect as of July 1st this year.
1: Now, PMAC is open, quick is not, correct?
2: Correct, PMAC is uh, is open to all comers, uh, and we are always looking for more EMS clinician representation. And in fact, we have uh, opening for uh, EMS clinicians uh, in Maryland that may be interested in joining our quick process. Uh, we uh, we have we have seats open, uh, so it uh, it is because it's quality improvement. We look at. Um, Privileged data, and so uh, you need to be a member of the committee and sign the uh, appropriate confidentiality forms. Um, mm, yeah. But uh, the uh, the opportunity is open to any Maryland uh, credential provider. So
0: something you said does uh, make me think of a, I guess a, a spicy question. <laughs> uh, you said you have a uh, the school board nurse mm-hmm. is part of the PMAC. Mm-hmm. Do you ha- So something we see in my jurisdiction, I, I don't believe this is across the state, um, because knowing a former school nurse from the county that the three of us live in, um, they do not do what I'm about to talk about or say. But the county I work in, uh, they empirically give epi auto-injectors for any complaint of a possible allergic reaction within the school system. Do you have a take on that? Because it, it it's a divisive subject at work. Yes. Uh, Moose is wide-eyed right now. did not know that was a thing. So, do you have a take on that? Or can there be a take on that?
2: <laughs> there was a discussion many years ago. I feel like maybe 10 years ago. Someone had put forward uh, something to the legislature, maybe, that would empower school nurses to give epinephrine to patients that had not been prescribed for. I was not aware that that had become a thing that was being done.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who makes protocols? I mean, do nurses have protocols? How do they do I that? So nurses
2: don't have protocols per se. Nurses are... Operating under their nursing license. And so, in general, a school nurse, for any child that's known to have an allergic condition, they may be prescribed an EpiPen and they're going to have a little note from mm-hmm. Billy's doctor that says, if he eats peanuts and he's wheezing, please give him this EpiPen. And they've got Billy's EpiPen in their cupboard of medications. If the medication has not been prescribed or ordered by a physician, then EMS is giving epinephrine based on the standing order of the written protocol because Dr. Chismar has signed off and said, if an EMS clinician in Maryland comes across somebody who is having an allergic reaction and looks like they could benefit from the epinephrine, here's the order, give them the epinephrine. It's, it's ordered um, with the sort of blanket order as a standing order for EMS clinicians to, to perform. Those standing orders do not apply to anybody who's not an EMS clinician. Uh, school nurses and school, actually not even school nurses. So school nurses operate under their, their nursing license and they can do the things that nurses can do. It's not inconceivable to me that a school nurse could recognize anaphylaxis and appropriately choose which patient needs epinephrine as a life-saving medication. I'm not part and parcel against it. I wasn't aware that that was legally authorized by the Board of Nursing. I could be wrong. Um, (coughs) There are some protocols that actually PMAC has our finger in, uh, there's a big binder that every school office across Maryland has that it's basically like a giant first aid manual. And it is when you don't have a nurse in the school and somebody runs into the office hemorrhaging. Uh, We have very simplified instructions for the um, school attendance Lady to grab the tourniquet out of mm. the stop the bleeding kit and and put the tourniquet on the on the bleeding child. Um, but those um, first aid guidelines are for a layperson to read and sort of navigate through. So they look like a protocol, they look like an algorithm, um, but they are not intended for anybody who operates as a healthcare provider of any stripe.
1: Okay. Usually, so these episodes have good resolution, but that question just really kind of... Oh, no! And the interesting
0: thing about it is, uh, you, you stated when the nurse sees signs and symptoms and a they're trained to give an epipen. So, anecdotally, all the ones I've come across never showed it, and it was usually off of the assumption of an ingestion of some kind of allergen.
1: Oh, the and it was pro-phylactic just epi. Yep, it. prophylactic <laughs> Epi. Yeah, it's
0: prophylactic Epi, and we're see we see it a lot. And it, it I could have sworn we got a CPG about it that about how we're supposed to handle these as an ALS provider, like downgrade wise, um, and like, and I couldn't find it when it was brought up at work one day. Um, but I could have sworn it was out there. But it's something we run into quite frequently. Uh, I was doing uh, a little QA work today, and I think I came across at least two out of the 55 that I QA'd wow. today. And that was doing an ALS to BLS less downgrade um, hmm. what I do. But it's, it's very prevalent in the jurisdiction I work in, and it's contentious. Because us as ALS providers, or even BLS providers, because BLS providers can give epi-for-anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. We're like, this child from what you just described to me, never exhibited symptoms to require this kind of intervention. So it's, it's interesting. Um, so I, uh, I, was like, I guess that was the spicier question yeah. of
1: the day. We, uh, I know it's we're on a time crunch, so uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show, uh, but My I know we, we both have six o'clocks. Yes. Um, you guys want to finish this out?
3: Oh, Josh.
0: oh, he's passing off to me after doing it last night.
1: <laughs> Any last comments, Dr. Anders, before we finish up?
2: No, this cool. has been really fun. We'll do it again I soon. like your spicy questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: thank you, Dr. Anderson, for coming <laughs> on and talking to the Alert Medic 1 team. And uh, your time spent with us was greatly appreciated. we got some great topics covered today. Uh, for any of our followers out there, make sure you like and follow on our various social medias uh, and uh, have any your alerts set up for your favorite podcast app for when we publish uh, just about every Friday coming up here soon. Um And wherever you're listening, good morning, good night, good evening. Have a good night, good morning, good evening, or whatever. And be safe and have fun doing
1: what you're doing. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One Podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.